1: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here and I'm here with my buddy, Joe Hagan. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. I'm so happy to be back here. Back in the saddle. Yeah, this yeah, is Yeah, me too. I'm
1: glad you're here.
0: This is going to be our new normal. We're really we're really getting back to well, our new old normal. But we're getting back to it. Mm-hmm. Life is sort of getting back to normal around here.
1: And we're hoping that, you know, we're setting a trend for the rest of society to get back to its new normal. Mm. And we want to, I, you know, I was just thinking the other day, uh, we were worried about the Omicron, 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 Omicron. Omicron. and uh, we may have less to worry about than we thought. We'd You know, it seems like uh, it's good that we were cautious, but maybe it'll be OK. Uh, I was reading a few days ago that said, you know, in three months time, they'll have a new booster shot for the Omicron. And I was like, wow. And I had just gotten a booster this week. So, I was just thinking about how many shots am I going to end up getting in my lifetime for this virus? And then I was thinking, uh, you know, the new kind of like pickup line is going to be that I've been vax, boosted, in Omicron.
0: And then whatever comes after after Omicron, right? I think that this is just going to be a reality where we are constantly... I mean, maybe, I don't know, what do I know? But maybe we're getting boosted all the time and there's new variants and some of them are going to be as severe as Delta and communicable as Delta and some of them are going to be as communicable but maybe less severe like Omicron. And uh, we're just gonna live in this cycle for a long time, I think. And we will learn to take calculated risks as we have. It's funny, I feel like I am now really starting to know so many more people who are getting sick or getting infected, even post booster. And that doesn't mean that the boosters don't work. I think what we're seeing is, okay, if you're going to live back like a normal existence, you're going to go to events and conferences and you're going to travel and you're going to have kids in school, you are taking calculated risks. And I don't think anyone wants to live in a world where you don't take those calculated risks and not good Everyone I know who has gotten sick has been okay. They haven't been, you know, it hasn't been smooth sailing and it hasn't been easy and I think people felt not well. But the vaccine does work at keeping this at a at a general illness and not something that's catastrophic or or life threatening. So this is where we well, are. Well
1: that that's right. And the the difference between getting sick and not dying and getting it and dying is a I would say a giant difference. It's meaningful. So It's a meaningful. And so, you know, the the, every report you see, the doctors are saying the hospitals are filling up with people who have refused to get vaccinated. And of course, they're displacing all the resources for people that have other kinds of illnesses. Mm. Right. And um, this has just obviously been a theme for weeks and months on end. This idea of the anti-vaxxed getting the illness after being morons for as long as they have been. You know, I just right here in my town. A prominent local figure who uh, owned and ran a restaurant didn't get vaxed, got it, and within two days was dead. Oh, God. And it's just—it's real. I mean, we read about it in the paper, and if you haven't been touched with it in an immediate way, you—you you must know by now that this is this is a thing that can touch you out of the blue, and. Uh, so, get vaxxed. Of course, you don't need to be told that if you're listening to this podcast. You'll likely have done it, but I'm trying to encourage everybody else to do it. How
0: do you feel post booster? Anyway,
1: you know, I felt terrible yesterday and it wiped me out pretty hard. I've had little waves of it today, but I'm mainly fine. Uh, I'm just glad to have gotten it. And, you know, I just went to a pharmacy. It's so weird that pharmacists are now coming out from behind there and giving you a it's shot. It's crazy. just a bizarre thing. But and the woman who gave me and I also got a flu shot, so I had one in each arm, Mm -hmm. and it was just like next day I was like neither arm was really doing great. Yeah. But uh, the woman who worked there says, uh, you know, she said I just wish that everybody would get vaccinated, but there's still all these people that won't do it, and so you know it's frustrating for the people that are trying to get everybody vaxxed to see all this you know resistance to it. Any case. That is, uh, but mainly, I feel like we're moving in the right right direction. I think I saw a number yesterday that like 60% of the country is vaxxed. That's the majority of people, and we're heading in the right direction.
0: Great. I mean, and you keep seeing things about mandates and companies taking lines. I know at our company, I showed proof of vaccination. And basically, everywhere I go into, my in-laws were here this week Just lovely. And we were going out to dinners outside still. And even sitting outside, I had to show proof of vaccination uh, at our local neighborhood restaurant. And and great. I will pull this card up as often as I possibly can. And and I was invited to a conference next week that I may or may not be able to go to. And it's required to be vaccinated and proof of a test 72 hours before the event. So this is just sort of the thing that we're going to have to do. And I'm game for all of it. I think we should all do all the things. Can I just say something really quickly? And and then we have a lot of uh, more uplifting things to talk about, but I wasn't on the podcast last week. And uh, I talked about this with some some friends of mine who, when we were talking about all of the choice stuff that's happening on the Supreme Court. And I know this Mm -hmm. is the most obvious point for anyone who's a thoughtful person, but I just, it's been, I literally think about it every day. The fact that people are anti-vaccine mandate and also don't want women to be able to choose what is done to their bodies and also yeah. oppose gun legislation is the most intellectually hypocritical thing in the entire world and I don't I know it's obvious I know it's been said a million times but I just think we need to keep saying it over and over and over again because it's the most oh. ludicrous thing in the entire world and all it is is extreme sexism and backwards thinking. And if if we continue to just roll our eyes at it rather than name what it is, um, it'll just keep going on. So hopefully we can just continue to name it out loud and, and point out the fact that it is wildly hypocritical, illogical, and deeply sexist.
1: And can I just add dumb? Yes, thank I'm you. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna say it's really, it's really dumb. That's, that's the word you know? that I meant to say. It makes smoke come out of my ears when I think about how hypocritical it is. and when I think about uh, these school shootings, mm-hmm. when I think about these Republican politicians who think it's funny to have like a Christmas card picture with their <laughs> kids with assault rifles in their hands, it makes me want to throw up. and it just makes me depressed and sad. Now, and we're all experiencing that you know on a daily basis as, to the degree we come in contact with these, you know, pictures and kind of negative campaigning these people are doing for their own political lives. But um, I do think as I—and this is just a gut feeling, and occasionally I'll come out here and say something that is uh, optimistic just based on a gut feeling. But I do feel like we're kind of heading in the the right direction right now. There's been a lot of articles in The Atlantic, you know, in The Washington Post and elsewhere where you have— People writing op-eds saying we have to be terrified that the Trump right is slowly altering the and gerrymandering and altering the voting rights around the country, and they are going to destroy democracy and uh, you know install a fascist government. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, in which all Christmas cards will have assault rifles mm-hmm. in them, right? But I don't, I, and I'm not saying that can't happen. And I'm, I think it's great to be vigilant. And I'm hope they'll keep writing those op eds and writing those articles in Atlantic about what's going on and keep the bright shining light on these things. But I just feel like the energy of that stuff is becoming more and more on the margins. If 60 percent of the country is vaccinated. That means 60% of the country has some grip on reality. Or right?
0: they have some grip on reality or they're required to by their employers or they're bummed about not being able well, to eat inside of a restaurant or go to a gym. And
1: that may be true, but I also think that some of the requirements are certainly there, but they also saw a huge spike uh, of people getting vaccinated when the reports of this Omicron thing That's came true, around. Very true. Very true. And I'm just, you know, so some of it's just sheer you know, laziness, or they just don't want to be involved, or they just don't can't be bothered. Maybe they're not in a job or a circumstance in which they feel like they have to care, right? They're not getting out and around people or whatever the case may be. But I've been reading in the today, the Biden administration is sort of trying to point out, and some columnists have, have written about this, that the economy is much better than people even understand, that Biden has done, almost like a historic level of turnaround on the economy. The unemployment numbers are down. There's a record number of the number of people out looking for work is very low. You know, the main kind of impediment to people feeling like the economy is doing well has a lot to do with messaging Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lack of messaging, Mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, As I've spoken on this podcast in the past, I think the Biden administration has been poor on getting out there and presenting, I mean, I think, I don't know why that is, you know, I don't know why Biden's not more frontal about what the victories are. And maybe he doesn't feel like he's a good messenger of his own uh, success. I don't know what it is. But, um, and on the other hand, we're so distracted by the virus. We're so distracted by uh, right-wing messaging, did you see this Tucker Carlson thing of the latest outrage? I shouldn't even bring it up because I hate that guy. I honestly, but, um,
0: I I haven't seen it. I'm I want I want to know and I don't want to know.
1: I'm not going to mention it. You know, I just decided if you want to know what idiotic thing he said, don't, but the point is Don't
0: want to know that. Free he, yourself. It's from a distraction.
1: Yeah, there's I, I just I just forgot it actually. Good. So there's this <laughs> there's this distraction cloud that the right has created to constantly distract you from you know, normalcy. And I think mostly it's not working. I mean, if it's you or me, people in the media, we're paying attention. And to some degree, we're victims of it because we feel like we have to cover it or say something about it. But,
0: you know, Joe, as you, as you bring up this Tucker Carlson thing, I have realized, and I talked about this a little bit with John Favreau when we had him on the podcast, I've become less curious. I think that I used to be like I had to know everything that was going on. And I was like intensely, I prided myself on that. And I was very curious about knowing everything in the news. And I feel, I don't think I'm an incurious person now, but I have put up intellectual boundaries on my life. And I don't want to know the things that are, don't feel completely essential and upsetting. So if there are things that are upsetting but are essential, I will I will take the time to to learn about them. But I now have put up uh, a news boundary, and my news boundary is not letting anything into my brain that is upsetting and and needlessly so. Maybe that makes yes. me a bad news person, but I now, I don't care. You know
1: what that makes you? It makes you a sane person. I'm
0: trying because we I mean- were all so absolutely insane for for five six years and i can't do it anymore i'm 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 right. preserving my sanity for when it really matters
1: well we're rebuilding sanity
0: yes you know that's and it's my a, build it's a back brick better. by
1: brick that's building back better build sanity yes. back better that's really nice. i like that i like that's that what, that's what, new inside. that's the our hive. position
0: for inside the hive i'm running on that platform <laughs> for our platform
1: yeah i like that
0: Talk about building back better in our, our professional lives here. You and I both have some stories to talk about.
1: Well, it's funny. It's exactly thematically uh, perfect because it's about people trying to regain sanity. Mm. And um, just to put another sort of thematic layer on it, it's interesting because you wrote a profile of somebody from the political world who is finding uh, sanity through art and uh, on the other side, I wrote about somebody who is really an artist, but who is trying to make sanity out of politics. What an astute <laughs> right?
0: point that is! And both in Los Angeles. That's right. And this is what an astute point that is. You wrote a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic profile of Adam McKay, and, and I—I'm sure that people listening to this have all read your writing because how could you not? They—they uh, they listen to you, and also you've written about everybody for major publications for many years in your young life but uh, you are Joe is a master at this class. I don't think that there's anyone better at working as a professional journalist than Joe Hagan at at profile writing. He is truly the gold standard. every journalist wants to be him. They want to write like him they want to report like him uh, and and it is such an art Joe you are an artist in this. But, but this profile of Adam McKay at this moment in time when he has a big movie coming out, it's so funny because the, the, the profile starts with him basically trying to write the beginning of the profile for you and saying that the, the art of this kind of personal profile is dead and it's from, from the past. And I think you go on to disprove his theory. This is very much something that's happening in the present because of you and because of how well you did this. But I I also just think, and other reporters will know this and and people who are very keen on magazine profile writing and reading, uh, you did something that was masterful. You had someone who was clearly very um, self-conscious about participating in this completely open up. You go from someone who is very obviously uh, hesitant to sit down and talk to you and, and, and do this to... Immediately him talking about his therapist and probably the most personal career breakup of his life and, and why he's doing the art he's doing and his politics and his mood and his state of mind. It's a real master class to get someone to be that comfortable, particularly when they're coming. They're starting from a place where they're uncomfortable with the whole idea. So I'm curious how you got Adam McKay to share his soft spots with you.
1: Well, first of all, I'm blushing and flattered by all those
0: Okay, um, move on. Things
1: you're saying. Yeah, we'll move on. But, you know, I had to, I'm sitting here a little verklempt, so Sorry. you have to give me that. Uh, that's very kind of you to say. But um, it's, truth. it's really a little bit about just, in this particular case, especially understanding who he is and what he is. I was a fan. Mm. So, and you know, I'm a fan of some of his movies. And uh, But I also understood right away when I began talking with him, I usually have a little pre-conversation with somebody about... What should we do and how might this go down and let's make it different let's make it better and um he was he's a born collaborator right he wants to collaborate and he's also somebody who likes control uh you know you can tell that he would like to help you and uh and then have some hand in sort of shaping what happens and so i didn't really I was just sort of surfing with it for a while, not knowing where all this is going, but I could tell that he was game and that he wanted to have fun. And he's a funny guy, right? You could just tell right off the top, Adam McKay, funny guy. Um, and I, as I mentioned in the piece, he sort of made this joke about um, that we would play a one-on-one basketball game and that whoever won would get to write the lead of my piece, right? And at first I thought, oh, that'd be funny, right? Let's We could try that. But then I realized that he's a basketball fan and he's 6'5 and there was no way I was going to win that game, um, but he said I'm going to write you these leads anyway. He kind of liked the idea of doing it, and uh, I didn't know what whether I was going to use them or what purpose they would serve. And it, he didn't send them to me until after I interviewed him. But just you know, but just saying, yeah, let's do it. Just being game sort of opened him up. He made him feel like we were going to have fun, and I think that that you know you just kind of roll with that. And, and let's be honest too. Just to be square here, we're roughly the same age, and it was easy to relate to him, right? He's from a similar cultural background and had the same touchstones, let's say, generationally. He's a Gen X guy, right? But one of the fascinating things that I think people will find in this article that I was fascinated with uh, is I decided to put in his fictional leads that he wrote. Into the piece, And it was not until I started to feather them into the piece and kind of think about the theme of the piece and also think about what his therapist had been telling him about his creative life that I began to realize how these were such self-revealing things that he had written, that they were all like uh, parodies of himself as a, as a jerk or some kind of like hypocrite or somebody who was like a rich Hollywood guy who had left-wing politics, right, which he roughly— You know, is in composite, right? But he was mocking himself. And there's this, you know, humor, as we know, is there's a kernel of truth to it. There's something there that he's uh, mocking and he's mocking himself. And I realized that I needed to dive into those insights that he's giving me. He may not be aware he's giving them to me. He thinks he's being funny. He's just being a comedian. Or maybe he is aware. But um, in any event, it was a great opportunity to have fun with the piece. And as you said... And this was the thing that made me pull my hair out and sweat and gnash my teeth in the writing process is like, OK, if you're going to set up the piece at the beginning, and this is real workshop kind of writing talk here. But if you're going to set up the piece as like celebrity profiles are stupid and not worthwhile, you better make you better prove him wrong by the end. You know, so it set up. It was a little bit of like uh, he was Babe Ruth aiming for the outfield and I had to hit the ball. Right. Yeah. So
0: that's it's entirely anyway, right. I, and, and And I think what you're saying about, uh, you know, the expression in wine, there's truth that, that oftentimes when when people will drink, you will find out what they really think. I think that in, in what he gave you as these sort of jokey things that you should, you should include in the story was the truth about how probably the, the things that he's most insecure about are the things he's He's either uh, wanting to portray or scared you will portray. And I think that that is incredibly revealing about the things that he either wanted you to hit or the way he wanted you to hit them. And I think that you obviously teased out a great amount of meaning in that. And I also think that I hear you on you guys being of a piece, right? And then that made it easy for him to open up to you. But I think a great part of our jobs is even when you can't relate to someone is making them feel like they can relate to you. Right. I think that, Mm -hmm. uh, when I describe my job or why I think I'm good at my job on the days where I do feel like I'm good at my job and that's not, not all the time. Uh, it's a lot of forced intimacy and you Mm -hmm. have to be really good at making people really comfortable, quick, in an incredibly uncomfortable situation, right? Like that is a yes. huge part of our job and and whether or not you realize it or you stop and take the thing, it's like you're kind of a spy. You kind of have to mm-hmm. disappear into the surrounding and make someone feel like you've been there for a really long time or that you're not there at all. Otherwise, you're not able to get the real of it, right? You just get someone who's pretty good at talking to reporters Telling you exactly what they want you to see. You you have to disappear into it, or make someone feel like you've been there forever.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that you and I both know in this business, especially when you're writing about Hollywood or people in power, and which we do quite often, is that obviously everybody has something to sell, mm. right? And so you're coming to them at a time when they do want something, right? But. One thing I've come to understand is people want to be understood mm. right, and if you are there to say "I'm here to understand you uh, and I want to understand you," and you ask probing interesting questions, it just there's a sort of natural flow that can occur if you let yourself be relaxed and try to genuinely get to understand what's going on in their head and and you know and ask what might be otherwise tough questions in the context of Um, trying to understand, which doesn't have to come off as confrontational or belligerent.
0: You can ask the tough questions if you are asking them in a way that feels like you're not asking them to ask because you have to ask the tough questions, right? They have to be part of a larger thing. And, And by the time you get to the tough question that they knew you were going to ask and that they feared you were going to ask, that you've built enough trust with that person that you are actually listening to what they're saying in order to give you the right answer or the, or the the thoughtful answer to that tough question.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a character in my story and I think that um it's worth just noting that he he had a therapist, this guy Barry Michaels, right? And Barry Michaels, there's a New Yorker profile of him, kind of famous one of him that's really great because he's like a, a well-known Hollywood super therapist, right? He has all these unconventional ways of getting people in touch with their shadow self, right? And it's like, you know, kind of like fancy talk for just your unconscious, you know, creative flow. And you just want to get out of the way of your own mind and become more creative. And he has all these ways of doing it. And it can sound kind of ridiculous when you're talking about Hollywood people going and trying to undo the writer's block with a super therapist. But in many ways, as you know, Emily, we are often... Put in the position of being a kind of therapist you know you're sitting there kind of asking very similar questions that a therapist would ask tell me about your mother right <laughs> and in the case for instance of adam mckay his mother is a right-wing trumper and religious and stuff so immediately you've unpacked something and i have a friend a very good dear friend uh named john who's a, a therapist in the west village in new york and has a lot of like you know high-powered uh, clients and stuff. And, uh, you know, we talk about this all the time, how we're basically in the same business. And, you know, we're we're uh, unpacking people's motivations and trying to find out, like, what's driving them, right? So, and this is about as good a segue as possible to your story, which, if you are listening to this podcast right now, you should open up vanityfair.com. It's very likely it's going to be there, uh, if not today, then tomorrow. A profile um, that Emily has written, and I know she's been spending weeks on this because I've, I've known about this in the background for some time, a very fascinating profile, which I finished like an hour ago. She gave me a preview. Such are the um, you know, benefits of being co-host of Inside the Hive. Mm-hmm. And it is such a fabulous piece. I think the first thing I told you is like, this reminds me of like a classic profile from like New York Magazine in the 1970s. Yeah. It just has this great, you know, it's an encounter. Right, I love encounter pieces. Right, where you're just—it's a little bit more than a talk of the town piece. It has a richer feel to it, and of course, we are talking about another person trying to build back better. Uh, It's Build Back Better Jr. Yes, really. Yes, Um, and that would be Hunter Biden. And what you've written about here is his new gig as a abstract painter.
0: Yeah, it's well. I I will say the first time I spoke to him was here on this podcast when he had his book come out. About to say that in the spring, and it feels like a natural extension of things for me to write about. I spent so much time writing about the last first family. Uh, It's a very different family and a very different field. But this was it was fascinating. I think we've all known Hunter Biden, whether he likes it or not. Uh, very intimately over the last few years. He has become the pawn in the right wing's game against Joe Biden. He was essentially the reason why the president, the former President Trump got impeached over uh, asking the Ukrainian government to dig up dirt on him in order to spook uh, then-candidate Joe Biden. And for someone who is so ostensibly known I didn't really know him and and there has been such a narrative written about him, and I think he is now at a place where he's trying to write his own narrative and he is painting every day. he uh, lives up a hill, a very steep hill outside of Los Angeles, sort of tucked away with his wife and his nineteen month old son, and he is in his studio for 10 hours a day painting hundreds and hundreds of, of paintings. And I spent some time with him there and saw his process and saw what he does and saw the paint stain fingernails. And, uh, I went to his gallery opening here in Los Angeles and he also had one in New York. And it's a really interesting thing. This is someone who is very committed to his art as part of his life post, um, recovery and sort of post being in the public eye every day, but it presents some challenges. He's selling his artwork at a time where his dad is in office and it poses some real ethical questions about uh, who could possibly use a sale of artwork to gain access to his father and the White House and the gallerist have put in some some meaningful safeguards, but of course, critics won't be quelled by any kind of ethical concern. Look, uh, we spent I spent so much time writing the last five years about um, the Trumps and the children and all the family members using their positions of power for personal gain. And so it is completely fair game to ask these questions. But the story obviously hits on that, but it's mostly about where our our first, Son is in his artistic journey in his first chapter of this new life in Los Angeles.
1: Well, his paintings are—this is the real kind of like uh, tension point in the piece is it's not—it's that the paintings are selling for extraordinary sums to buyers who we don't know, whose identities we don't know. One. I think one of them sold for like $300,000 or something, right? Which is, um, you know, I happen to be friends with some extremely talented painters mm-hmm. who were at uh, Art, Art Basel just this last week. Oh, wow. Right? And, uh, you know, they would, uh, it would be like the sale of a lifetime for them to sell a painting for $300,000, right? And I'm not going to try to compare and contrast and say they're better than Hunter Biden as a painter's, uh, but it is pretty extraordinary. Now, but you have seen these paintings. And one of the critics you you cite in the piece compares them a little bit to Kandinsky, uh, you know, an abstract painter. I'm not like a aficionado of painting. I, I'm you know average art intelligence. But give us a little taste of what you saw.
0: Well, I would say I'm of average art intelligence. Also, that feels like a good way to paint me. Um, but they're good. That the artwork is good. I think that it is. It is really impressive, and I think um, the artist Shepard Fairy, who is known for his hope obama posters you guys have all seen them a million times he was at the opening in la and i spoke to him afterward and i was like well what do you think of all this what do you what do you make of the pricing and what do you make of the art and he was like for a guy who's just starting out this style like he has a lot of different styles and you can sort of see who he was influenced by but there's some real good work here and you can tell he's he's giving it a lot of thought and attention and the art world pricing is always nonsensical, right? I think that the reality is it's a very opaque process. And he was like, if people will pay that for him, good good for him. His gallerist basically told me, Hunter Biden is a figure in history. And so not only are you paying for art that is good, but you're paying for who he is. I understand that that gets factored into pricing. I can also understand how the fact that you're paying for who he is it could be ethically challenging for someone whose father is still in office. One, one thing that I thought was really interesting and I, I pressed him on this, why sell it now? Right? Like if you, it is mm-hmm. his explanation for why he is doing the art and, and I will, will not do him justice. You should go read the story to hear his quotes about why he's doing the art. It's really beautiful. And, uh, I, I, a thousand percent understand and, and it's emotional he's coming from a, a place where he didn't think he was necessarily going to be here he definitely didn't think he was going to be in such a good place and he is and I think that the art uh, has a lot to do with that so I understand why he's doing the art I, I couldn't going into interviewing him understand why he was choosing to sell the art and he told me that he he recently had a, f- a friend say to him why not just be an EMT or something like that like do your art and don't sell
1: okay. it would you mind if I read yeah This, because this is, to me, this was the real amazing quote in the piece. And you can set, I don't know tonally if this, if this quote, it feels like he got like a a little emphatic here or, um, yeah, a passionate, let's put it that Mm -hmm. way. And, And so the setup here is his dad, you write, had waited so long for this moment. Hunter had for years just made a painting a soft hobby, right? Wouldn't it just be easier to take a low profile, lower profile job? Maybe he could be an EMT and paint on the side for fun. And here's his quote. Well, for starters, I don't want to be a fucking EMT, Hunter tells me. If you're going to make a painting that's five feet high and 22 feet long, you're going to want to show it to somebody. And if you're going to want to show it to somebody, you're going to want to show it to them in a place and in a way that brings to life what you are attempting to express. And if you do that, then you have to find a gallery in order to be able to do that. And if you find a gallery, the reason that galleries stay in business is because they sell the fucking art. I don't know of anybody else that has figured out a way to be able to share their art at that scale without having to be in the business of it somehow. And I respect that incredibly. So, And he goes on, there's some other quotes about this, but that was a pretty uh, hot little moment because... You know, he's basically saying, you know, you know I'm, I've decided to be a painter. Painters decide to show the paintings. And this is what you got to do if you want to do it. So he's basically saying my uh, interest in painting, I guess, trumps these ethical questions.
0: The other thing and, is, well, well, he once said this to me, and I don't know that it's in the I don't think it made it in the story. Um, but he said to me basically like. I chose something that I thought was going to be the least problematic. Like painting is the farthest from politics that I could possibly do. True, it's not yeah. like he didn't go into law, and then every case he would choose would be scrutinized. He didn't go into even medicine, where you're then working with drug companies, or uh, he's not lobbying anymore. Like I, painting is the furthest away from Washington that you could do, and so I understand. This guy is, you know, he's in his early 50s. He's allowed to make money, right? It just, it's, it's incredibly complicated. And I write in the piece that there's no such thing as a private Biden. And I don't know that there's, there's a way for, yeah. for any, anyone adjacent to politician to live a private life anymore. And so I don't yeah. know what the solution is if you, are, if you are going to have your life have to be public, and you are going to want to have an income while you're in a famous political family it's very tricky I mean Chelsea Clinton deals with this all the time too right it's just it's a very tricky spot and i I don't think that's right I don't think that you're going to have a, a situation where this is going to be black and white cut and dry anymore
1: right well I read his memoir and uh he's a he's pretty candid guy and he's pretty He's fairly introspective, and and I guess he's thought it through enough that he's decided in the, and you know, given the sort of damned if you do, do damned if you don't sort of scenario he's in, he's just going to paint, right? And if somebody wants to buy the painting for three hundred thousand dollars, what can he do about it, right? Um, how old is he?
0: I think he's fifty-two.
1: Because that's interesting, because Adam McKay is fifty-three. Huh. So we're dealing with um, we're dealing with a similar demographic here yep. and a similar interesting uh, moment in their lives and by the way I know that just some of the fallout um, from my story you know Adam McKay I think he appreciated uh, the profiler wrote uh, artistically How but the will not? Ferrell fallout yeah was oh, very let's upsetting talk for about him this
0: so you actually like made <laughs> serious news and I saw you know the oftentimes the best case scenario is someone uh, is is something that you write in a profile like this will catch Attention of other writers, right? Like that's that's a great thing. It means you have made some news in a beautiful portrait that you have painted, and it's hard to do both of those things. Usually, you have news or you have a beautiful portrait. But you have struck gold. You made some news within a beautiful portrait, and the news that you made surrounded his uh, relationship and breakup with his former partner Will Ferrell. T- talk to us about the news, and then. I want to hear your reaction. Sometimes, like, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes when I make news about something in a profile, I feel a little thing about it. It feels like, I don't know if this is what I intended. I don't know if this is how, oh, well, how, what I, I want uh, to be pulled out of it. And, and then you just feel, uh, I feel anxiety about it when it happens.
1: Well, I, I agree. I Precisely. And so... So the news is that he and Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, and Will Ferrell were creative and uh, comedic partners since their days at Saturday Night Live. Right in the nineties, they both came to Saturday Night Live. You know, really the same season. They they were recruited the same week, and they began working together. And we know the story. It's Anchorman, Talladega Nights, all these famous comedies they did together. But there came a time when Adam McKay started to go in a different direction. Even though they had a production company together, people remember Funny or Die, the online comedy outlet. They started that together. They had this production company called Gary Sanchez Productions. So they were very bound together um, in their careers for a long while. And then Adam McKay began to want to make things like The Big Short and Vice. And there began to be a creative split. Eventually, the split becomes a tear. And they're sort of an, you know, there were more than one inflection point in their kind of breakdown, but there was one in particular, and it had to do um, with—and this really went to their personal, you know, friendship, even just beyond their business breakup, in which uh, Will Ferrell expected to be cast in a new limited TV series that Adam McKay was making about the NBA, Lakers in the 80s. And out of the blue, or behind the scenes, Adam McKay recasts— the part that Will Ferrell was intending to have, and uh, made John C. Riley, who happens to be Will Ferrell's best friend, gave him the part, and he did not tell Will Ferrell in advance this was happening, and in, he, Will Ferrell learned it from John C. Riley. It's also ridiculous, but one thing leads to leads to another, and they are no longer speaking, and Will Farrell's infuriated, and Adam McKay confesses, I kind of blew it. I didn't exactly do that right, but I wish that it wouldn't end this way. But who knows? I mean, there's a lot of other things under the surface that will probably come out over time. But that was the inflection point or the straw that broke the camel's back. So this blows up. This is like the last. This is three quarters into my piece, right? It's like like thousands (laughs) of words later. (laughs) Yeah, this is like the, you know, in a 6,000 word piece, you know, it's at 4,000 or whatever. So uh, and it blew up. It was it went like global. You know, international news. It was everywhere. And I have to say, and I am i don't want to, like, let too much out of the bag here, but, like, Adam McKay, none too pleased. Because he has this movie coming out, and he wanted his movies about climate change, and he has good intentions to tell a parable about our problematic society and its inability to cope with climate change. And he's personally very concerned with climate change. There's a line in the story that he says— um, where uh, he says, you know, climate change is the biggest story in the history of upright apes, is one of the quotes, right? And he was complaining about, I can't believe this Will Ferrell story is now like everything I have to talk about in every interview after this story came out. And I said, well, you know, it turns out upright apes like gossip, and uh, you know, it's in in a sense the next thing I told him was that's what your movie's basically about, right? The movie is about our inability to uh, focus on important things because we're just so distracted by bullshit, Mm. right? Like uh, the certain Fox News host who I mentioned in passing, and I almost became a victim of that, right? So, I mean, that's... And so it's, in a way, the... And I, to be, to get to my feelings about it, I don't like it when... I mean, I'm glad for the magazine, because they like to have the, the traffic, right? Uh, Vanity Fair and The Hive, they can get traffic from big news stories, and everybody loves news. But this is the conundrum of modern journalism.
0: It's not only that. I actually don't think it's a conundrum. It's, you're not, you didn't publish the story with the intention of having clickbait. It wasn't the headline of the story. It wasn't right. that. You genuinely, within a 6,000-word story— made something that was so newsworthy that people picked up on it, you were just an empath, right? And (laughs) you know that this was one piece of a much longer thing and it wasn't the main thrust of the story. And it just happened to be so juicy that it caught attention and people lost sight of the main thrust of the story. And sometimes... People's minds are so conditioned to the clickbait of it, right? And people made clickbait out of your much bigger story. And so you sort of feel possessive over like the overarching thesis rather than the bit of news. And that feels strange right. sometimes.
1: Very much, yeah. And you want people to like find out that this story, which they only got this little tiny slice of, is this thing that you labored over, you know? You know, we're in a sense, you and I are uh, portraitists, like, you know, from like the 17th century or whatever. And you're going to do like a giant painting with like, you know, the big gold frame around it. And it shows a dog and it a wife, you know, the wife and child and the you know, Lord of the Manor. And they all have expressions on their face that tell you something about their inner lives. You know, we're, we're you know, we're doing these. And so you do it. And then the entire world just focuses on like a little, you know, a grasshopper in the corner or whatever. And you're sort of like, hey, but I made this painting. So, uh, I'm not saying we're artists of that level or actual uh, masters. But (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, there's an analogy of like, if in our version of it, in our little world, uh, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears to create these things. But in any event, I'm happy that people read it and looked at it and I, I have no complaints.
0: Uh, you know, it's funny because as as your friend and colleague, I was so excited that it was getting so much attention. But as someone who could very easily put myself in your shoes, I knew that feeling that you were probably like, well, this is great that there are eyeballs on this, but is this what I want the eyeballs for? And this is one yeah. piece of it. I know that spiral uh, that, that you can internally have. And I felt all of those feelings at once for you.
1: Yeah well you know thus is modern journalism this is the modern the modern the world in which we live It is. Uh, or as john homans would have said this is the uh, this is the life we have chosen right he's he's quoting the godfather 2 or whatever that but, is um, exactly
0: as i said here like ter- my is about to come out in any second and i'm like terrified of 17 million yeah. things that could possibly happen um, yeah. and and all of them are, are opposing. So I don't know which thing is going to actually be the terrifying thing that will happen, but so many of them. Right now, the possibilities are endless. So,
1: Well, you're, you're right at the precipice right now, ah. because as we sit here and speak, the uh, Hunter Biden piece has not come out yet, but I'm sure uh, we will be talking about it, and it's very likely that the quote I read, for instance, <laughs> you know, uh, may you know. It's be always what you out. don't expect.
0: That's the reality. Yeah. Sometimes you know yeah, you have true. you. You're like, oh, this is news, and it's going to get pulled out. And other times, it's not the news that you expect, and it's this one other thing that you were like, oh, that's totally innocuous. I wasn't even going to put that in there. And that's the thing. And sometimes it's nothing at all, and people read it and say, that's lovely, and move on with their day. And that to me. It's almost better. Don't tell our bosses, yeah. but that sometimes yeah, feels yeah, yeah. like it's a saner way uh, to live life.
1: So, here's what I would like to do as just sort of a caboose on this episode here, is that um, last week, we had uh, Miriam Elder and Mike Hogan, our, um, you know, Fearless let's leaders. just call them the management the management, right? But we love them in and they're, they're smart, sense. great people. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, they're great and they are the best bosses we can hope for. And they were on the podcast and we were talking about the Beatles thing, um, which is, has a very long tail of discussion in the culture right now because it's freaking long. We're but still halfway through. I know you didn't get it. to contribute.
0: Oh my God, I'm obsessed. Yeah. Wait, can I, can I give you my overarching <laughs> takeaway? I have Please, two. two. Yes. One's more important than the other. I'll give you my least important one first. Uh, I cannot believe this is real. I cannot believe I keep reminding myself that this isn't like a recreation I cannot believe this exists it's astounding to me and I'm riveted we, we're like we're rationing it and, and there's so much of it that it's crazy that we're rationing but we're rationing it and my second takeaway is who's hotter than Paul McCartney?
1: yeah cute guy well, he's in his high cuteness too because he's got the beard, right? Turtleneck. He looks for me. like a kind of. Um, I think I described him as like a sea captain in my first yes. write, a- write up of it over the summer. He's got this sort of like you know, kind of romantic uh, look. About oh, him, right?
0: I mean, I'm sure Lee appreciates it so much, but but about like 17 times every night, I'm like, who's sexier than Paul McCartney in this footage? Like, <laughs> there's just it's distracting. And yes, he's an incredible songwriter. He's
1: handsome and mega talented. He's like the, you know, every time he just starts to be, how about this guy with song, guys? And he starts playing, you're like, oh my God.
0: It's it's wild. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life.
1: It is remarkable. And what an interesting concept. I mean, it was a collision of two kind of extraordinary things. One is that there's this much footage of the Beatles during this protracted, you know, this tiny little bit of time. And that. Peter Jackson had the idea. Oh, you got 60 hours of the footage for a mo- of the Beatles for a month. That's a reality show. That's all the footage you need to make the most incredible reality show. But it's set in January 1969, and
0: it's real. It's, I mean, you as know. a reality queen, I feel like I have, I am an authority on the subject. I've never yeah. seen anything like this, and I am riveted.
1: Yeah, it's great. I mean, and they're not even like that self-conscious uh, no. about it. No. You know.
0: It's the opposite. I feel like they should, I, I like want to go back in time and be like, hello, do you not know they're yeah. a camera. You guys are insane, but I'm so happy <laughs> yeah, for yeah. it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it has been the bright spot of the season for me to be able to constantly indulge in that. And it returns me to all my Beatles records. And I've just been kind of like geeking out and, and I don't feel alone in my geekiness. I feel yes. like the entire World is sharing my my nerdy thing. It's like Peter Jackson turned us all into
0: nerds. It, it, you're suddenly the coolest person in school, Joe. But I will say, I, <laughs> I actually feel so sad. And I, as much as I say um, how much I'm I'm fangirling over McCartney. I, I, equally as often I say to Lee, God, I wish Joe were here because I would kill to watch this with him. I have so many questions and I kind of <laughs> need you in real time to be there answering my questions as someone who is not a super fan, um, just like a mild fan of the Beatles, that I don't know enough of the context. I think it would be so much cooler to watch it with you. So um, maybe maybe I'll make you rewatch the entire series with me by my side so I can get your your full commentary.
1: Yeah. That'd be amazing. Like, um,
0: Or you should do a I'll director's do DVD- cut. Yes.
1: I was going to say, it's like the DVD director's cut yes. from a time when there were DVDs. But um, yes, I would be happy to do that for you, give you all sorts of private trivia that will, uh, you know, you'll be buried in, in
0: uh, information you'll never use again. I would um, be gladly buried. Uh, I, I, I have to pick up on your bright spottedness. This, This has been a bright spot for me. Uh, and in this period and um, it has made my day and I, I just wish everyone bright spots your McKay profile is a bright spot for me I, I hope I urge everyone to go read that and we're just going to keep plugging away and as we get closer into the holiday season looking for these bright spots um, I hear my bright spot waking up for her nap right now so I'm going to go tend, tend to her but we will be right back here next week
1: She's sort of our producer. She kind of knows when to wind it down.
0: Well, she is nothing if not an alarm clock.
1: That's our show this week. Thank you to Emily Jane Fox and her dog and her baby for all coming on to the podcast this week. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this happen. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe. Come back. We have something special next week. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program, and we'll see you next week.